Now, one of the first things I do as a PT, when I have somebody that has orthopedic pain, I ask them to squat. It shows me a whole lot of things, and I get why the deep squat is part of FMS, because you can see a whole lot going on with just asking someone to squat. As an athletic trainer, if I don't have that student athlete coming to me saying, I'm having knee pain, can you help me? I may not go in and proactively change their squat. There are people who do things perfect, but when you ask somebody else to do things perfectly, it doesn't work for them. For the second episode of this second season, we've got two incredible humans on who are experts in biomechanics, sports epidemiology, movement screens, and functional testing for injuries uh, in athletes. Megan Warren is now the program officer at the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute and was a faculty member with a PhD in epidemiology and a physical therapist at the physical therapy and athletic training department at NAU. Monica Leininger is an associate professor in athletic training at NAU and completed her PhD in measurement and research. In this episode, we dive deep into movement screens, what they're used for, where they came from, and the various ways to use and modify them for circus, as well as some nerdier conversations about reliability and validity for those screens. Stay tuned. In general, my understanding, limited as it is, of movement screens is that it's trying to provide um, not necessarily a predictive capacity for pathology or disease or dysfunction or um, risk for injury, but an associative one. Uh, I had a conversation with a gymnastics physical therapist who I brought up a little bit of your, your research, actually, and his take was, well, movement screens really were never meant to be predictive. Um, so that's something we can t absolutely talk mm -hmm. about more. But with that in mind, uh, there's, depending on where you are in the physical therapy and kinesiology and exercise physiology world, you know, there, there are two ends of the spectrum. And on one end, you have this very uh, biomechanically focused, not necessarily like reductionist, but all right, if you are not in external rotation at 30 degrees, you will injure this, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other end, you have kind of the people who are super into the biopsychosocial model where it's like, well, the things that are really going to impact whether you're injured or likely to get injured are uh, your stress levels, your recovery, mm -hmm. um, life events how motivated you are to train those those factors the the first thing that i want to get into a little bit is just the thought process behind movement screens and their creation there are a few different types of movement screens that are out there and as you know in your review dr warren or megan um megan please <laughs> is that they're aimed at detecting disease pathology in someone who's not currently showing signs or symptoms. And the intent is to then separate out those who might be at increased risk for that disease pathology 
whatnot, and then create a targeted intervention based on that grouping. From your broader epidemiological perspective, why did you decide to study movement screens? Why did you decide to get involved in that? And what do you see as their utility or potentially their flaws in the general movement world? And then we can dive into some of my circus related questions. Yeah, um, I think it was, <laughs> it's actually an interesting story. And this is how all good research starts. I was a faculty member in physical therapy at NAU and um, we had a fire drill. And this truly is how this all started. And we had a fire drill. And with a fire drill, you go to where we, at NAU, we have this thing that's called the French fry sculpture. And that's where we are to report during a fire drill. And, um, and so I was, I reported to the French fry sculpture as I was supposed to. And a first year PT student, came up to me and I didn't know who he was. I had no interaction with him at all. And he asked me to meet with him about potential research topics. And so that is truly how the um, movement screen started. And so I'm an epidemiologist. I'm a physical therapist, but I'm an epidemiologist, which means I understand study design, how to design studies, how to analyze data, how to process data. But in terms of biomechanics, that is not my area at all. So this student came up to me and wanted to meet with me. And, and so in our conversation, he started talking about all of the things that he was interested in. And it was you know, it was from here to, it was from soup to nuts. I mean, it was just everything. And, and so we tried to kind of focus where, what could be an answerable research question. And I think both um, Monica and I, that's where we focus, like what's answerable. And, and so, um, and he is a um, co-author on almost every single thing we've published. He's a first author. His name's Craig Smith. You will see his name show up on many of our papers. Mm -hmm. um, but we also, I also realized I needed a biomechanist to understand the process. And so you will see Nicole Chimera on many of our papers and she's a biomechanist she's an athletic trainer and is a biomechanist so so the three of us started our initial team and that's really but it was a fire drill that started this process and then we brought monica in because you know i think there's a there's a really nice paper by Barr that talks about what's needed to show uh, that a movement screen can be used to predict injury and can it and Barr talked about the measurement properties need to be clear mm -hmm. and and that's kind of his second criteria is the measurement properties need to be clear and Monica has a her her degree and and her expertise is in measurement and so we brought her in so we built this team but Truly, it was a student who approached me, and that's what got us started on this process. I, I will say that that's a really 
inspiring story for anyone <laughs> in academia currently. If you go and ask at a fire drill or somewhere else, you may be surprised at what the answer is. Yes, and 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 I think um, for all the inspi- aspiring researchers out there, it was did his homework had some background evidence, had some background. He had been a personal trainer before he went into PT school. So he knew what he was using, but didn't know why. Mm-hmm. And, but, and had done some reading, so he was prepared. And then, yeah, find a faculty member who has some dedicated time because they're standing at the French fry sculpture during a, during a fire drill with nothing else to do than to stand there and listen. <laughs> and, uh, and that kind of started us on this path. And that was in 2011. So it's been a long journey that we've gone through with this. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, oh my gosh, it's almost 10 years now. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And Monica joined us in what year, Monica? In 2014, I joined the team. So I would also just echo what Megan was saying about students. Uh, just we as clinicians have so many great ideas and may not have a clear research question, but working alongside with a faculty member or someone that has experience with research, clinicians have fabulous questions that they want to improve patient care. And that's a great avenue to go down. I don't want to make this about the questions that are in my own head because they are infinite, but it, it, I think it's, it's almost like wanting to live two dual lives of being a clinician and being someone who can answer the questions you have as a clinician. Those aren't the same person most of the time. So, But that's the team approach that comes into play, which I think is so critical. Yeah. And Aaron, and, you have us now forever. You have Monica and I forever now. So sorry. If you have questions, you th- toss them out to us and uh and we'll uh we'll help as much as we can. Just be grateful I'm not in the NAU physical therapy program because <laughs> I'm getting a lot of questions. The FMS has become pretty wild widely adopted, uh for better or for worse. And if if practitioners and providers are going to be using this tool, one that costs a decent amount of money to to get certified to use, but also that is aimed at having certain beneficial health outcomes. What do people need to know when they're considering using it or having it used on them or just in analysis of, of movement screens in general. I mean, in your review and your research, you know, you're talking about how a movement screen should be both reliable and valid. And so in broad terms, what do you think? Is the FMS something that is reliable and valid? I, there are some criteriums that I read that may or may not be. Um, and then within that, would you recommend that people go out and use it or maybe use it for some things, but not other things? Uh, There are different types of movement screens, as you mentioned. And the one that in my head would make the most sense to apply for circus and aerial, which is a very like niche and range of motion, wild movement, broad, different types of movements, uh, athletic discipline would be the movement quality against the standard criterion. Mm -hmm. But I know that there are coaches and providers who work with circus artists and circus athletes 
who maybe use the FMS. And so, yeah, FMS in general, what are your take on the validity and reliability on it? And then applicability towards something specific like Circus and Ariel. I will take the first and the third, and I'm going to leave the second for Monica, which is validity. Um, but, and, 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 and let me just start out with a little bit of validity and say that the FMS was developed by really highly skilled and competent physical therapists and athletic trainers. So who are experienced who, if I had an injury, I would go see them for treatment. So I, in no way, shape or form, do I think the development was in any way bad at all. Um, and, and I will, and, and I will say that I've administered the FMS to research participants, and I'm going to get to number three first, and I've also used it clinically. At NAU, we have a pro bono clinic, and I used it um, just last year with someone because they thought they, they were having knee pain and back pain. And they were at the gym a lot, and they, they said, but I squat really well. Now, one of the first things I do as a PT, when I have somebody that has orthopedic pain, I ask them to squat. It shows me a whole lot of things, and I get why the deep squat is part of FMS, because you can see a whole lot going on with just asking someone to squat. And this, this young woman who thought she did a perfect squat, I think is what she told us. It was far from perfect, as you can imagine. And um, she was a PhD student at NAU. And I was like, okay, if I show something that has kind of these expert PT and ATs that developed it and said, look, here's your problem when you're squatting. This is what we need to work on. And so I used it as a clinical tool to show her where there were criteria set up that maybe she wasn't eating. And I, and, and I just felt like with her data mind, that was going to work for her. Mm-hmm. So clinically, I think, you know, that works. I have no problems and no doubts that the people who developed it are right on and are experts in our respective fields. All that being said, I'll take the reliability piece. FMS is reliable. And um, it's been shown in systematic reviews. It's been shown in, um, we did a study. And and as you said, the certification course is expensive. Um, And we did a study, our first study with FMS, we looked at both inter and inter-rated reliability. And we had four people who were, were scoring FMS. And we had someone who was certified, who was a, a cross-country coach in the Flagstaff community. We had that biomechanist with a PhD in biomechanics and had never seen the FMS before. We had that student from the French fry sculpture who had used the FMS clinically, but didn't go through the certification course. And then we had a first-year PT student who admittedly knew nothing, right? Had never seen FMS before, was taking anatomy and biomechanics, but really didn't have a lot of clinical experience. So we had certified, we had someone with clinical experience, we had someone with 
book knowledge and biomechanics, certainly. And then we had someone who knew nothing. <laughs> and that was our first year PT student. And we showed that all four of them could consistently score it. We had 20 people come in, and then a week later they came in again. All four of them consistently scored these people doing the FMS. They also were consistent together. So we did a two-hour training session. It was a standardized training. We used standardized instructions, and they all scored consistently. Not surprising, the most consistent was our biomechanist with a PhD in biomechanics who was an athletic trainer with clinical experience. So she had clinical experience, she had research experience, she had book knowledge. Of course, she was the most consistent. But that first-year PT student who knew very little, he was completely, acceptably consistent with scoring the FMS. And again, as was a certified person, as was the person who used it clinically. So our conclusion with, with that is two hours of training is sufficient to be able to consistently score the FMS. The bigger issue is the validity piece. And for that, I will turn it over to Monica. <laughs> Really quickly, before, thank you for that answer, yeah. before we get into the validity piece, would either of you like to, for those who aren't as up on the research elements, uh, describe the difference between validity and reliability and how that's relevant? I'm going to turn that right on over to Monica as our measurement expert. So Monica, take it away. I was going to apologize now, Aaron, to you and your listeners, because I'll keep the mic for an hour on this topic. But anyhow, um, yes, I was actually just taking some notes here that we do need to talk about that. So reliability simply means that you get the same results over and over again. So when you think about um, taking someone's range of motion or even the example that you use probably in eighth grade when you were learning about reliability and validity is the bullseye, right? Do you hit the same mark over and over again? So that is great, but we also like to say that reliability is needed but not sufficient for validity. So reliability is like a component of validity. They're very similar but still separate. So validity, validity is going to be more um, in terms of the results that you're receiving. So, so validity is going to be the accuracy of those results. And so what's super important here is that the FMS specifically, as Megan mentioned, developed by experts in their field. So validity is about the accuracy of the results. And so as Megan mentioned, FMS was developed by experts in their field and What's important, though, is FMS was developed to investigate movement pattern dysfunctions. It was not developed to predict injury. And so we start to have some breakdowns when we start using a tool not as it was developed. So again, FMS was created by experts, but it was developed for a different purpose than what many are using it for now. So this is another reason that we start to see that FMS is very reliable. We get the same results over and over again. And the problem is, though, that it's not necessarily when people take it to say, I'm going to assess someone on the FMS and see if, they, if that, their results are predictive of a future injury. That's where we start to fall apart. Thank you for that. I, sorry for derailing. With that in mind, can you imagine functional 
use cases for the FMS I, um, for, for Circus and Ariel. So if someone's like, hey, I have this tool in my back pocket, I feel qualified to use it, I have a Circus or Ariel athlete, and they're coming to me to make a more resilient athlete or something. Is there, is there a use case where like, this is the time to use that tool? I think so. Um, I do. And, um, and so you're going to learn the phrase over and over and over again, which is evidence-based practice. And that's what we are as physical therapists, as athletic trainers, as everyone involved in the care and rehabilitation of athletic populations. And, and so, you know, back to what I said clinically, I know the evidence for FMS. I know what it was, but I was going to use that for this person. And, 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 and for that person, I, as a little side note, I used the 100% scoring so I could really break down to show her how to, um, what was going on with her ability to squat. Um, normally, FMS is a four-point score, but they have come up with a less clinically useful, if you're going to go through all seven tests uh, and three clearing tests, a hundred point score. So, um, but, but it, because I was only using the deep squat, I was like, okay, we can, we can kind of do this. And so I think there can be a benefit of showing the athlete how they're moving. And, and, and I think that's, you know, as, as physical therapists, as athletic trainers, as budding physical therapists, as athletes, but, but athletes may think they know it more than they do, having a sense of body awareness and how your body moves is really important, more than strength, more than range of motion, more than, you know, power, more than, it's understanding how your body moves and that kinesiology. There's a reason physics is an important course, right? <laughs> there is a reason. And so I think on that side, I think something like FMS or any other standardized movement screen can provide insights into understanding how someone moves. As Monica said, I think we took that, which is what, you know, Cook and Hoogaboom and Burton wanted to do. And kind of said, well, can we expand it into something else? And so um, that's my opinion, but I'll let Monica kind of add to that or disagree with me, which would be fun. We would never disagree. <laughs> um, I completely agree with that. I think that it helps these, the athlete to better understand their ability to move. And then you can show them possibly some movement dysfunction patterns that they may have. Now, to be able then to make this leap to say, well, you're at a high risk of sustaining this injury, again, we can't do that. But if we use FMS as it was intended, I think it's a very valuable tool to use. I think I would say, the, sorry, the other thing I would say, you know, I have patients squat 
it's one of the first things I have them do. Go into any gym, any rehab center, any performance center, and watch the, the big three for FMS are um, deep squat, inline lunge, and hurdle step. And I want you to look at the number of people who are squatting and lunging and then doing something that requires them to step either box jumps or anything like that. So these are, these are, these are movements that people, you know, if I go down the street to the gym, I'm going to see people doing those. If I, if I watch the NFL combine, I'm going to see people doing those. If I go to a warm up for a, you know, aerialists, they're going to be doing those. So these are movements that are just so ingrained in, you know, regular healthy people, non-healthy people kind of exercise, physical activity, performance, and then rehab. Monica, think about the number of times you've had someone in rehab doing a squat and or lunge and or something where they're stepping I mean, we can't even enumerate the number of times we use those movements clinically. One thing that I will say more as a clinician here is that you can break apart the FMS. So what Megan was just mentioning is the big three. So as a researcher and a measurement person and validity, you have to use it as it was intended. Okay, well, leave that alone. As a clinician treating the aerial, or the, um, aerial artist and the athlete. So treating them, I'm more concerned about that than using the results as they were intended to be. So when I have an athlete squat, when I have them lunge, when I have them step up and over, that I'm more concerned about as opposed to can they plank well or can they do shoulder mobility. And so using the FMS um, test that are most I was going to say the word associated, but I don't want to use that, but are most closely related to what the student athlete or the athlete does in their sport would be very clinically relevant. Great. I was, that was where I was about to go because most, most athletic disciplines that aren't aerial involve some kind of lunge, jump, mm -hmm. squat, or hip hinge, squatting pattern, whatever. Um, and an aerial, it's not to say that you don't have hip hinges um, or positioned where one leg is in hip flexion, the other leg is in hip extension, splits in the air, et cetera. But there's less of that. And, and so the, the one question I had is if, if I'm a coach or if I'm a physical therapist, do I look at, or do I try to make a, a list of the movements that I would want to see that would be representative of those common movement patterns for aerial, whether they're on the ground or in the air. And can I do that without having, you know, a thoroughly well-designed movement screening tool just as an individual, whether I'm a coach or a practitioner who's in allied health? I would say that you can, but what you miss out is the standardization and the grading against a criterion. So that is the part that you are missing out on. Um, and I was thinking a lot about aerial athletes and, you know, we look at these movement patterns and these dysfunctions, but when you're flying in the air or, you know, when you are in the air, um, 
how do you limit the injury that could happen, right? We're talking acute injuries, most likely, more so than a contact injury, which you might see in, say, a different type of a sport. Within the research that you both have done, and, and the FMS in general, and, and other studies looking at the FMS, they're looking at acute non-contact injuries primarily. Within aerial, we have acute non-contact. There very rarely is going to be um, contact injuries in circus, but sometimes in partner aerial, partner acrobatics, there is. And then you also have overuse injuries. And it's a little bit of a continuum. You have recreational aerialists who are more likely to have an acute injury. And you have advanced aerialists who are more likely to have an overuse injury. I don't think there's necessarily a good answer. But since there isn't a standardized scale for aerial movements, and there is, there is more and more research being done in the field, but not a lot, but more than there was 10 years ago, for sure. Are there, do you think that there are other parts of the FMS or parts of another screening tool that we aren't actually talking about today that could be kind of taken from those tools using the standardized metrics and applied to more upper body dominant movements or movements that involve different ranges of motion. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I think the FMS and a lot of movement screens posit that they, they are screening movement, moving from a proximal to distal segment. So from the core and spine and outward which I think would speak to aerialists, um, you know, so, so that's what they posit. Um, back to kind of validity, are they actually doing that? We haven't quite seen that as clear. Um, but I think there are, um, there, there may be tests that measure some of the, um, skills that are um that all athletes do and so um and and so how we address that and so we um recently published a study that um looked at and we looked at female student athletes who participated in sports with a high power component volleyball basketball and soccer Ground sports, I get that. I'm going to get to the non-ground sports, so hang with me for a second. Um, and and we use we looked at um, some FMS stuff, we looked at some Y balance stuff, and we looked at some hopping tests, hopping tests that um, we we've used clinically for years and years and years for return to play after ACL injuries. And we found that the triple hop, which is a measure of power, uh, it, and and we found that, um, and 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 we were able to, as researchers, come up with a cut point using some prediction analysis. They're called area under the curve. It's not. Um, super interesting for this conversation, but we were able to find that and also looking at a difference between one side versus the other. We use that a lot clinically to say when is that injured leg, that surgically repaired leg, when is it equal to the non-surgically repaired leg? We looked at just an absolute 
difference between sides because the people we were studying weren't injured. Um, and so I think some of those power tests may have some, some value. Now, my non-weight-bearing activities, my non-weight-bearing sports. I, um, I was um, recently on a dissertation committee for, for someone out of Drexel University looking at swimmers. So I told you I'd get to a non-weight-bearing sport. <laughs> and With he, overhead range of motion. Yes. And he took components of the FMS. Actually, someone had done it in a previous dissertation at Drexel, but took components of the FMS and other movement screens and kind of created this swimming-specific screen. And his dissertation was looking at the validity of it. So I think those those types of things can be done. Um, but all that being said, I don't know a lot about aerialists and aerial aerialist athletes. However, I can imagine that having good proximal stability and, and proximal stability from the glutes on up to the traps, right? Kind of that entire chain from the, the butt to the neck <laughs> is really important to be able to allow the, the, the mobility in the distal segments. Is that a, is that a fair statement? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, okay. Yeah, I mean, if you're not able to transfer momentum through your hips, or through your shoulder to your hips and vice versa, a lot of things are going to get a lot harder to do. And I mean, without saying anything about, oh, that'll increase your risk of injury because I'd be talking out of my butt if I said that, um, <laughs> potentially might have uh, associated risk of injury, maybe. But, you know, people with stronger lats and serratus and rectus and, and glute medius, they're going to be better able to move distally, right? I think we can all kind of agree on that. And, and so the other thing I'll say, and, and maybe Monica, you were going to talk about it. We, we started some exploration of some other tests, not screens, tests. And one of I was going to mention one. Oh, good. Because I, uh, all I can remember is one. So I'm going to turn it over to Monica to talk about that. <laughs> Wait, before, before we turn over to other tests, if this is an appropriate time, you talked about um, looking at people recovering from ACL injuries mm -hmm. and trying to get the leg that had, had the operation done on it back up to the normal, normal leg. And I just want to tie that in a little bit to the idea of asymmetries in general, mm -hmm. because... In, in aerial, we have this saying of don't be an aerial crab. And what that means is essentially like one arm super strong, one arm kind of wimpy and, and weak. So you have big concerns. I don't think it's wrong to try to train both sides evenly and to try to make it so that if you have a performance, you can do the same movements on both shoulders or both legs because you never know what's going to come up. And maybe you want to alternate side to side depending on how many performances you have. But how much does the research bear out asymmetries as something to be concerned with in either acute or overuse injury? 
a lot. Uh, a lot maybe is a bit of an overstatement, but I'll tell you, our initial work we did with FMS and the Y-Balance test, which is just in a dynamic, single-leg, instrumented version of what's called the Star Excursion Balance, which has got a lot of research published on it, we had a hypothesis. Um, we let the data tell us the story, but our hypothesis was that this cut point of FMS wasn't going to tell us anything, and anything about the Y balance itself wasn't going to tell us anything. That was our hypothesis walking in, but the difference between the sides we really thought was going to tell us something important. And for why balance it did. And I think the, the literature is fairly consistent with why balance that this anterior reach. So your your if for example your left leg is static and your right leg is moving anteriorly or forward. That has really been shown in a variety of studies in a variety of populations to be associated with injury. And I think that is pretty clear. FMS, it really has been variable. And most people have shown nothing. I think one of the military, I forget if it's military um, studies, showed some asymmetry issues. But I mean, that was, again, as Monica said, clinically, we come up with our questions. And we are researchers, and we, that's what we do. But our heart, our, our, our background is as a clinician. And, and so, um, so we really thought we were going to see more with asymmetries, and we did with the triple hop, that test we were talking about, the power, we did show something. So I think, I don't want to speak for my entire research team since one of them is sitting here, but I really think that's where we thought we were going to see, we were going to tell our story. Um, and I think others have um, with asymmetries. And that's, that's even about, you know, and you've seen previous studies and runners and things that are symmetrical athletes, right? Um, you know, we have asymmetrical athletes like basketball players and things like that, but we have symmetrical athletes too. And, and I think the asymmetry has, has maybe shown a little bit more promise with these movement screens. Monica, what do you think? Yes, I would absolutely agree. I think the asymmetry is where our field is looking to go to have that clinical impact and to start trying to move the needle on research. I think that we started out as we should have with cut scores or saying if you're above this, you're high risk or low risk. And I think we're just not finding that that is as predictive or even associated with injury. And so we're trying to find out, well, what could be used here? So one thing I did want to mention is Megan was talking, I was taking some notes, but a couple of the tests that we have used, again, I'm not going to speak to prediction of injury, but some that may be useful for your listeners would be the single leg um, wall squat. Mm -hmm. And so the single leg wall squat is where the individual is positioned with their back against the wall. They have it, they're on one leg and then they hold that squat position for as long as they can. So that is real. The re, that was developed for core stability, which I think your athletes would use quite a bit. Another one is the single leg hamstring bridge, mm -hmm. where you're lying in a supine position 
you put your leg on a 60 centimeter table or box, and then you're doing these kind of, I think you mentioned about hip, um, you're going into essentially hip extension, but you're raising your trunk up like doing a bridge essentially. So, and then how many repetitions you can do for that. And another one, I do want to go on record here that this is Megan Warren's favorite test <laughs> ever, ever. It is called the tuck jump assessment. And so the tuck jump assessment is used for, um, it's 10 seconds and you have the athlete stand in a regular, just standing uh, hips underneath their shoulders and you have them jump as bring their knees up towards their chest as high as they can and back down and repeat that motion for as most power, I'm sorry, as powerful as they can and do as many repetitions as possible over those 10 seconds. And then there's a 10 criterion scoring rubric that you can use to say the knees go into valgus or their, um, they didn't maintain that positioning for the 10 seconds. And so there's all these different types of metrics. And so that is also, we have found to be a great uh, stability test that could be used too. I think those are great ideas uh, to, to potentially use as even part of a warm or conditioning session in an aerial class and you can even preface it hey this is hopefully informative um you know if one leg is fatiguing faster than the other and you're one leg waltz it or maybe one hip is hiking higher than the other in that same thing with the single leg hamstring bridge i do have one not not necessarily a counterpoint but one question to kind of go along with all of this which is in the broader physical therapy world, there there are folks who would caution against increasing kinesophobia over what would be considered bad technique in a movement. So, um, you know, knees collapsing in too much on a squat. Normally, people would be like, oh, when you squat, your knee should be over your feet or even maybe out a little bit. But then there is also some evidence that maybe knees collapsing in isn't actually that bad. So how do we reconcile that? And that's a pretty big question as coaches or healthcare providers or researchers, when we're designing movement screens or using different tests, like some of the ones you just mentioned, knowing that we have what we think is good technique or what is qualified as good technique, but in a high-level basketball player who's never had a knee injury, maybe their knee goes super far into their midline. I, I think, and we don't know how to say his name, but the Mivais, um, you know, re, th this model of injury etiology, and and you know, what adaptations or compensations may be okay, not. Monica, is okay the right word, or is it just accept? I don't know how to say it. Is it expected? I'm not sure how how to how to describe that. But you know, there are um, there are people who do things perfect, but when you ask somebody else to do things perfectly, it doesn't work for them. Monica, help me out here. I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> um, so that that me vice, um, I'll just help the 
audience to understand a little bit better. So that's a sports etiology. I'm going to talk in research terms here for a minute, and I'm going to give you my clinical perspective as well. So that model was also modified by Barr and Holmes in 2005. And so essentially it's talking about intrinsic factors in the individual. So that's age, sex, previous injury, and then extrinsic factors as well, such as the equipment or the environment. Um, and so these are risk factors. So intrinsic and extrinsic risk factors that an athlete will have, but you can have these complications but if you don't have an inciting event, meaning someone falls as they are tumbling through the air, or if something doesn't happen, then they will not be, they may not sustain the injury. So coming back to what Megan was saying, you can have these risk factors, intrinsic and extrinsic. But if you don't have the inciting event, then you may not be injured. So we can try to make that athlete and make them, you know, squat perfectly but maybe we didn't need to because they weren't ever going to have that inciting event. So that's all research jargon, but something I also live by that my great grandmother taught me was if it's not broke, don't fix it. So meaning if I don't have in my, as an athletic trainer, if I don't have that student athlete coming to me saying, I'm having knee pain, can you help me? I may not go in and proactively change their squat. Okay. So following up on that, because the, the last bit you touched on, segues into this question, which is, I agree. If it's not broke, don't, you don't need to fix it. And I know that there are circus coaches, performers, a lot of circus people want to go into physical therapy as a profession. Um, Yay. Yeah. I don't know why you want it. So we're all crazy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, but I think there's this idea that, so on the one hand, if it's not broke, don't fix it. On the other hand, if it's not broke, as in that person's not currently experiencing pain, what if not fixing it leads to, you know, overuse complications down the road? So one example is I had a student a long time ago who is a contortionist aerialist now, came from maybe a dance background, but spent so much time in external rotation in their legs. So turning the knee away from the midline and in their straddle pancake stretch where your legs are in abduction, your chest and torso is on the ground. They had knee pain on one leg. Normally you cue external rotation there. I was like, well, we'll try internally rotating a little bit. The knee pain went away. Something that would be considered good form led to knee pain down the road. But on the flip side, if it's not broke, don't fix it. But what if, even though it's not causing pain, it could cause overuse injury down the road. How do we, how do we, how do we know anything? Well, I think the other thing that makes it challenging, I'm, I'm assuming for the aerialists, um, artists and, and, and athletes is that how you look when you do something matters. Like it doesn't matter if a basketball player lumbers down the court as long as they score two points. And it doesn't matter what a football player looks like. And, and so, but, but, but an aerialist needs to have kind of athleticism, but also artistry. Absolutely. And so I, that, that I'm sure that adds a second layer. And then 
you know, that football player who's lumbered down the field for so long, then when you see them when they're 45, they can't walk up and down the steps because they lumbered for so long and they scored points. So nobody cared what they look like. And, and so, you know, I think there's some, there's some, you know, there's the long-term consequence for sure that, that people can get, and, and by long-term it could be a month or it could be when they turn 45, but then you also have an artistry that you need to have. And I am, and uh, Monica, did you ever work with a gymnastics team or anything as an athletic trainer? Because I would think they'd have something very similar, right? And dance as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how do you, how did you balance that Monica clinically? That is an excellent question. (laughs) Um, I think I, it truly came back to, I think what I want the listeners to know is that I didn't go out with my gymnast and my dancers and say, I'm concerned because of your movement pattern that you may get injured. I definitely was watching. I'm in an observational scientist, as I call myself. So meaning that I'm always watching how they're moving, but I may not go up and intervene with them and say, I need you to squat appropriately if they don't have pain yet. And so, you know, a listener might say, well, that sounds really harsh. You know, you want them to be in pain before you help them. And that's not what I'm saying, but I'm actually not going to go tell that athlete, oh, well, you're externally rotated. You have to be for proper form when that's causing pain. So it's a balance. And I'm sorry, I don't have a clear answer of this is when you intervene, this is when you don't. But as an observational scientist, I'm always gathering data and thinking about what is that tipping point that I would intervene. And, and, and let me say that I should never make generalizations, especially when I'm being recorded, but um, I think that there are some generalizations that we can say people should always be working to strengthen proximally and, and, and with good stability. That is always going to benefit them in the long term. So glute med, glute max, Rectus, your abdominal muscles, your, you know, your multifidus and things like that. Sure. But, you know, that, that your proximal stability and strength is never going to be harmful. And it is always going to help you in both the short term and the long term. So I just made a huge generalization. (laughs) While being recorded. We'll both dive in. I would agree implicitly. I may just add to that, though, in a functional capacity. So, meaning that, yes, I can fire the rectus abdominis all day long, but when I'm doing it lying supine and just going into a flex motion, that is not going to help me as I fly through the air beautifully. So making sure that you're doing so in a functional capacity and recruiting and executing the right motions for that time. And and to kind of bring it back, it's why I have patients squat all the time, right? It's why I have them do that. So, you know, again, you you can't separate our clinical knowledge and our clinical brain from our research brain. It's just impossible. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
when you're working with an athlete or a sports team or whatever, and you're balancing that line of, okay, well, I don't want to go in and tell them, well, you need to be externally rotated and blah, blah, blah. Um, when you do go in and offer some feedback, how would you recommend using language that is both detailed or, or not detailed, but, but that is going to cue them to get them to do what you want, but without potentially encouraging or increasing an internal narrative of, oh, this part of me is dysfunctional or broken because we know, or I shouldn't say we know, but there is some research to indicate that the internal narrative and the, the language around training and coaching does have health outcomes and, and um, performance outcomes. Um, yeah, I would. So for me, um, which you'll find shocking because I've talked a lot today. I, I don't tend when I'm, when I'm working with a patient, and again, as a physical therapist, I'm seeing people after they're injured. Monica does way more on the kind of prevention of injuries as an athletic trainer. I see them after something has already happened. Um, and, and I think our strength and conditioning uh, friends and colleagues, they work with them before kind of injury. But I don't tend to tell them a lot. And, and, and this is the kind of the artistry of PT. It is putting my hands on a patient and saying, okay, right here, I want you to work. And so it's providing them with tactile rather than verbal feedback. So it doesn't, for me, it doesn't hold the same judgment. Like, no, don't do it that way. Just, I want you to work. I want you to focus right here. And by putting my hands on them, I think that guides them to what I want them to do. But Monica's worked a lot more with people before they get hurt. So I'll let her kind of fill in. Sure. I would say that I always try to have an optimistic outlook. And I try to give them, I probably give them more information than Megan does. But to say, here's why we're doing this. Not sit up straight because you don't want to slouch when you're 45, but here's why. Because when you are performing as an athlete, you need to recruit these muscles. And so when you're sitting in class today, make sure that you're not rounding forward, but sitting more with an upright posture, and here's why. I also try to tie everything to their sport. So meaning, here's why you're going to use these muscles, and we want to make sure that that movement pattern aligns nicely. So being able to give them information, but I, I do agree with Megan that I may not say, oh, wow, I'm really concerned that this might happen, right? Or I don't want to get inside their head. I completely honor that. But I do give them enough information to try to better themselves as a person and then an athlete as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's a fine line of clarifying the goal, whether it's in rehab or in prevention or just training and not reinforcing a, oh, well, my technique is bad, so, or my left shoulder isn't externally rotating enough, so it's probably going to get injured, and then maybe you injure it because of that or something. I know it's time, so 
Thank you both so, so, so much. This was excellent and lovely. And I really appreciate both of you hopping on to Cirque Appreciate your time. And seriously, it has been a pleasure. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of bummed that I'm not going to NAU now. Um, Aaron, this was fantastic. And, um, and thank you for, you know, and again, I think your questions that you asked us really got us to think as we want to, as clinicians, as researchers, and at the very base of it, I like that Monica said, I think she called us observational scientists. I would call I us observational movement scientists. And because <laughs> I'll never let Monica get away with something the first time. <laughs> but I think it really allowed us to think about things that we don't normally get to. We're focused on other things. So thank you very much, Aaron. Yeah. Thank you very much. This was a pleasure. Thank you. All right, that's it for this episode. Thanks for staying tuned through the whole podcast. As usual, it really helps if you can like, share, or subscribe to the podcast and get this, what in theory is useful information out to more people. If you're really enjoying the podcast and want to support it in another way, you can go to patreon.com com slash and support the podcast while getting access to some tutorials, training tips, and pre-recorded workshops. Anyway, have a good rest of your day, evening, or morning.